One of the more well-known stories in the history of professional football is when Vince Lombardi, the famed coach of the Green Bay Packers, he entered training camp in the summer of 1961, and he started at square one, you might say. He told the team uh, that was there, gentlemen, this is a football, as he held up a football to them. It was his way of saying, we got to get back to the basics. The team the previous season had come so close to winning the championship, and it was as though he thought the team needed a return to fundamentals to do well what so many would overlook or underestimate. So he covered the basics, and what ensued in the following season was a championship. Now, I am not intending on doing some ecclesiastical version of that, holding up the scriptures to you and saying, church, this is a Bible. I'm not doing that. But what I do want to do, especially in light of what's going on in the news, is I want to ask the question, who is Israel? And so you might anticipate that what is coming is more of a commentary on current events than it is on Acts chapter 3, and it is not that. I have no problem with commentating on current events. I think one of the lessons that Christians should have learned from 2020 and COVID and should learn afresh in this season is to be very careful with anything that you get from the media outlets that are out there. I think that's a lesson to be learned. I think, for example, when Hamas is feeding press releases to the American press, and then before you know it, they are saying, okay, Israel, in retaliation, struck a hospital, and it killed five, the, the rocket blast killed 500 people, and then you come to find out, little by little, there's video footage that shows that the rocket was among other rockets that were being fired from Gaza into Israel. And then you find out that that hospital is still standing. And then you find out that it hit the parking lot, it didn't hit the hospital. So you have all these variables, and I cannot stand on even those variables like I would on the Word of God. The Word of God is inerrant. It's authoritative. But one of the things I want to remind the people of God about is to be very Berean-like. Remember the Bereans from Acts chapter 17? They heard the Apostle Paul teach, and they checked the Scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. And I'm just saying, when you hear things in the media, for instance, you have to be very careful. And you have to remember the times in which you live. You live in a day and age where universities have peddled a lens to so many people that they can't help but see things, especially in universities, through critical theory lenses. Now, I've taught on critical race theory, and you could listen to the messages that I taught on that. But through that critical theory lens, the world is seen through the lens of oppressor and oppressed relationships. So you've got to just find those categories in every situation. And I'm not trying to be an apologist for Israel. I'm definitely not trying to be an apologist for the terrorism and the wicked things that Hamas has done or anything like that. But I would say as Christians, you have to critically analyze things. You would just even say from a natural temporal standpoint, if Israel were to lay down its arms, what were to happen? There would be massacres. There would be death. If Hamas were to lay down its arms, what would happen? There would be peace in that land. You look at the, uh, the infrastructure that is supporting this, and there's so much that can be said about that, uh, and, and, and the ideology that's behind it, and so on. There's so much I could say. I have no problems. I talked about it extensively Wednesday at small group. If you have questions, I'd be glad to help you. But what follows is not an extensive commentary on the current events. You need to know who Israel is from a biblical standpoint. And you need to know that the future is tied with Israel's forecoming forthcoming reception of Jesus Christ as Savior. You'll see that as we make our way into the text. So if you know who Israel is, this introduction will be a refresher. If you don't know who Israel is, consider it a brief introduction. Israel's history goes back to God choosing a man by the name of Abraham. 
You see this in Genesis chapter 12. He was a man from a pagan background. He lived in a pagan land, and God came to him, sovereignly chose him. He was named Abram at that time, and God made promises to this man. Among the promises that God made to this man, Abraham, that he would make his name great, that from him he would make a nation, that he would provide protection. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who cursed you. Among those promises was this promise that through his seed, all the families of the earth, the peoples of the earth, would be blessed. Now you have to see how radical this is if you're just reading through Genesis. If you're reading through Genesis and you get to Genesis 12, before you got to Genesis 12, you read Genesis 3. God made the Garden of Eden. He put man and woman in the garden. You see that in Genesis 2. And then what happens in Genesis 3? The rebellion, the fall. What happens not too long after that? Genesis 6. The world is flooded with iniquity and violence, and then it's flooded literally with the flood that would come, and we see that in the latter portion of Genesis 6, Genesis 7, and Genesis 8. And then the rebellion ensues after the flood. So you not only have the fall in Genesis 3, the flood in Genesis 6 through 8 in light of man's rebellion and so on, then you have the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and what does God do in Genesis 12? He chooses a man by the name of Abraham, Abram at the time, and says, through you, I'm going to bless the world. I've told you before that the grace of God is amazing. Genesis 12 should be a reminder to you that it's often surprising. If you're just reading through Genesis, you wouldn't have expected that to come in Genesis 12 in light of who humanity had been up until that point. But God is just that gracious. Well, back to the history of Israel. God chose Abraham, and it was going to be through his son of promise, Isaac, that the nation of Israel would come. In fact, it's through Isaac's son, Jacob, who you might remember in Genesis 28 is later named Israel, that Jacob's descendants would then have that name. They would be called Israelites, the people of Israel. Well, as you go on in the scripture, the Israelites were a kind of adopted nation, of all the families of the earth, it was to Israel that God had specially made himself known. After being delivered from Egyptian bondage, God gave them the law at Mount Sinai. He entered into a covenant with that nation, with the nation of Israel. It's what's often called the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant was his law. The law was comprised of more than just the Ten Commandments, though in large measure summed up in the Ten Commandments. And in the law of God, the people of Israel had direction provided for Israelite living. It also showed them their guilt and their need for a savior. And it also pointed to the coming of Jesus Christ. And there's so much that could be said about that. So you have this nation that's been formed, the nation of Israel. And I want you to think of the privileges that came with this sovereign, undeserved election. They didn't do anything to deserve it, inherit it, or merit it. Abraham didn't. God graciously chose them for his purposes. He was going to bless the world through them. And they saw the God, God's glorious presence manifested in the cloud of glory. They saw the pillar of fire. They received instructions for the tabernacle, which was a pattern after that which is in heaven. They received instructions for the priesthood. They received promise after promise. And eventually when David came, it was revealed that through David's descendants, one day the Messiah would come. And so Israel would essentially be the pipeline through which the Messiah would come. And it would be through the Messiah that Israelites and non-Israelites alike could find salvation. 
Israelites would need salvation through him. Non-Israelites would need salvation through him. But God chose the nation of Israel to be a pipeline through which he made promises so that the Messiah would come through that line and both Israelites and non-Israelites could only be saved through him. That's a little bit of Israel's past before we discuss Israel's future. And it's Israel's future that is in view in the opening verses of our text, in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, but we're going to make our way through um, verses 19 through 26. Well, if you remember the context, the beginning in Acts chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 1, and we see this as we go through to verse 10, there was this amazing miracle of a lame man being healed. This man who had not walked since he had been, he just never walked. In his mother's womb, he was lame. And for 40 plus years, the man never walked. And all of a sudden, by God's grace, he is healed through Peter. And you remember, he is celebrating and the people are then coming to find out what's going on. And the miracle provided a platform for Peter's preaching. The people hadn't seen something like this in the temple precincts outside of when Jesus was doing these kind of things in the land of Judea. And now all of a sudden the crowd gathers and Peter's going to explain to them the miracle first. He's going to tell them what happened. He's going to say, God has glorified his servant Jesus. And remember we saw last week, you go in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, and Isaiah 53. That identification servant was an identification that associated the Messiah as being the promised one who would suffer for his people and then would eventually reign over the whole world. He would be the exalted one who would purify many nations, many peoples through his blood. So Peter begins to preach. You might say he gave the people there a diagnosis that they didn't want to hear, that they were guilty before a holy God. But then he gave them a remedy for the disease of their guilt. He identified Jesus as the holy one, the just one, the prince of life that they killed, but that God raised from the dead. He was the remedy to the diagnosis that they received. And then he told them how to apply the remedy. This is the bad news. You're guilty before a holy God. This is the good news. He has sent his son. And this is how you apply the good news. You repent. You have a change of thinking. And it results in a change of direction. You turn to God and you look to Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. And then he gives them this amazing news. He tells them, repent, and your sins will be blotted out. Imagine, from the perspective of God, because God's omniscient. God's not forgetting anything. God knows everything. And so it's as though every sin that we've ever committed is well detailed in the history of his books, to use language from Revelation 20. Every deed, every thought, every action, every impure motive, whatever it is, all written down in his books. But there is one way in which all of that ink, as it, can, as it can be stated, can be blotted out. There is one way, through looking to Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins. And the God who knows everything will remember your iniquities no more. And that's what Peter's telling the people. You turn to Jesus, and that list, that list that you don't even know exhaustively, I don't know my own list exhaustively. I know the list of my sins in my life, past, present, future. I know it's more than I could even imagine in my mind. It's the same for you, whether or not you realize it. But the beautiful news of the gospel is when you turn to Christ, all of a sudden they get wiped away, clean slate, past, present, and future. Best news ever. Every sinful deed, every idle word, every wayward thought, every impure motive that's all been jotted down, if you will, gets blotted out expunged from the roll, eradicated and erased from the catalog of sins. 
What a motivation for repentance. But then, not unlike God, Peter will then provide more reasons for this Jewish crowd there in Acts chapter 3 to repent. And that's where we pick up today. We begin in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, where we read, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, or who was ordained for you in some of the better manuscripts, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began or from time long ago. Okay, so after the greatest reason to believe. So you're here today, and if you haven't believed the gospel, I want to tell you the greatest reason to believe the gospel. It's in the beginning of Acts chapter 3, verse 19, so that all of your sins can be blotted out, so that if you are at one day reaching life's end, you don't have to worry what's on the other side of death. You don't have to say, I don't know what's on the other side. I hope I go to heaven. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. I don't want to have to give an account for my sins. The greatest reason for anybody in this room to come to the Lord Jesus Christ is so that through him, so he gets all the glory because he bore all the punishment. You look to him and all of your sins get blotted out. That's the greatest reason to come to the Lord. Tied to that, by the way, tied to that is this beautiful reality of being reconciled to him and then enjoying him forever. I mean, that's part of what we've been discussing in the doctrine of heaven that we've been studying in our eschatology class. But Peter goes on to give other reasons. He tells this Jewish crowd, he says, so that, so repent, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's an interesting word that's used there, the word for refreshing. It's only used one time in the Greek New Testament, that word that's used right here. It connotes a feeling that you would have if you were outside on a really hot day and the sun is just beating down on you and then all of a sudden this cool breeze hits you. That's what that language connotes. It connotes the kind of feeling you would have if you were outside again and let's say you're sweating, it's a really hot day, you're so thirsty and all of a sudden you get a nice cool glass of water. You know that feeling if you've ever been outside and you do have that nice refreshing glass of water? Don't you just want to bottle that feeling? It lasts for like, you know, a second and a half, two seconds. Like this is euphoric. This feels so great. It's as though Peter is saying, when you all repent, and I'll explain what I think he's getting at here, the times of refreshing will come. There will be an epoch, if you will, a time, a season that can be described as that feeling of refreshing. Now, I think he's talking about something on a national level and on kind of a worldwide scale, and I'll get to that in a moment, but I do think there's legitimate application that can be made personally. As though he was saying to them, when you repent and your sins are blotted out, then something amazing happens personally in your life. Times of refreshing will come. It's as though you could liken life without Jesus Christ to wandering in a desert. And as you kind of wander in this desert, you find, if you will, dirty cisterns of sin that do provide some temporary, albeit fleeting, satisfaction. And then you drink from these cisterns and you get a little bit of satisfaction, but then you feel kind of queasy and gross after, whether it's guilt or whether it's all the different things that come with sin. But when a person comes to Christ, it's as though he meets them with ongoing spiritual refreshment that comes from his presence. 
It's as though there are these waves of refreshment. Doesn't mean life's going to be easy. You could come to Christ. And in certain parts of the world, you come to Christ, your life gets harder. But spiritually, you enter into seasons, if you will, of refreshment that you did not know before. You start drinking from the waters of life that come from the throne of God. You drink freely from that water. You experience times of refreshing. And let me just provide a note of encouragement for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ already and you're like, there are just some times, though, when I feel like I am just boxed into this place of despondency. And I just feel like whether it's my disposition or my circumstances, I just feel like I'm in a hot and dry and humid land. And I don't know if God could reach me in this place. Yes, he can. Rivers of water can meet you. He specializes in bringing rivers of water to dry places. Just read Isaiah 32, verse 2. I think it's part of the already of eschatology, meaning that there's Things that we're going to experience in full in the age to come that we get to taste now. And I think part of that is refreshment in Jesus Christ right now via the, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But with that being said, I think what's more explicitly spoken of here are times of refreshing that are connected with the repentance of the Jewish people as a nation. When Israel turns to the Lord, there will come these times of refreshing. And the reason why I say that and one of the reasons why I love walking verse by verse through the Bible is so that you can see it for yourself. I would say I think that in light of the context. So if you look at verse 19, Peter is telling the Jewish people there, repent, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come. Look at the very next verse. It's connected with Jesus returning. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before or who was ordained for you. And then if you go on to the next verse, verse 21, Peter described Jesus as the one whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. It's as though Peter was telling the Jewish people, when you repent, times of refreshing will come, verse 19. Jesus will return, verse 20. And those promised times of restoration that are strewn throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, those times will come. I think there are a lot of reasons to believe this. Here briefly are just some of them. Jesus himself connected his return with the Jewish people's recognition of him as the Messiah. Speaking to Jerusalem shortly before he would die for sinners like us and then rise from the grave, he said, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they will see him again, and that time will be in conjunction with the time where they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think Romans 11.26 argues this. When the Redeemer appears out of Zion, the heavenly Zion, and turns ungodliness away from Jacob, from Israel, I think Zechariah 12, verse 10 speaks to this, and you could reference that as well, where it seems like the turning of the Jewish people to Christ is either in conjunction with or very closely connected to his return. A little bit more theology here about what happens when Jesus returns, Israel's connection uh, thereon and thereforth as well. Paul spoke about the worldwide blessings coming as a result of Israel's repentance and restoration. If you were to look in Romans 11, in Romans 11 verse 12, speaking of Israel, Paul says, Now if their fall, like their by and large rejection of the Messiah, 
If their fall is riches for the world, because what did that mean? They've rejected the Messiah. The gospel went out from Israel, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and it went out to the world. So Paul is saying, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If even though the Jewish people, when Jesus' first coming, rejected Christ by and large, though not completely, if that led to the gospel going out to the whole world and blessings covered the world as people came to know Christ, what is it going to be like when the Jewish people recognize him as the Messiah? Paul's essentially arguing there, it's going to be even better. In verse 15 he says, For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their repentance be but life from the dead? Uh, Michael Vlock in his work, He Will Reign Forever, a biblical theology of the kingdom of God, has said, the restoration of Israel will lead to global blessings on a wide scale and includes cosmic renewal and harmony in the animal kingdom. You can see this in Isaiah 11. If you want to get excited for what's coming, if you know Christ, right, you you get excited for what's coming when Jesus returns, get a little glimpse of that in Isaiah chapter 11. One glimpse of that can be found in the peace that will be seen in the animal kingdom. In the animal kingdom, Isaiah gives these for instances here. He talks about wolves and lambs, leopards and goats, calves and young lions, creatures that you wouldn't put together unless you wanted to like, lose one and feed the other. He talks about these creatures dwelling together and being able to just, you know, be there together. I, I thought it's neat when in my mom's house I would see uh, a pit bull, uh, Brooklyn, lying down with uh, a lapsapoodle, Hudson, and like, wow, you got this like dog who could, you know, could tear Hudson apart very easily. And there they are just kind of like lying down together. That's the kind of harmony, if you will, that you're going to see on a global scale when Jesus returns. But then this picture is even painted even further in Isaiah because then you see this not only animal-to-animal harmony, this animal-human harmony. Isaiah writes of a child leading a calf and a young lion. Isaiah writes of a nursing child being able to play by a cobra's hole and a weaned child being able to put his hand in the viper's den, Isaiah 11, verse 8. Just talking about this change that's going to happen, this renovation, these times of refreshing, these times of restoration. It's not just limited to that. Isaiah 2 speaks about wars ceasing. There's so much more that can be said. A pulpit commentary put it this way, that the Old Testament had um, basically looked at these times of refreshing as those, quote, blessed days of righteousness and peace and rest and universal joy, which are characteristics of Christ's kingdom as foretold by the prophets. All of this is connected with Jesus Christ's return. Zechariah 14, uh, verse 9 says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name is one. So the takeaway here is, if you're wondering where the future is going, I can tell you, there's a lot of ways to unpack that, but one way, at least with Israel's relationship to the gospel, there will come a time leading up to and perhaps even in conjunction with the return of Jesus Christ when Israel, as a nation, at large, will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ will return and the blessings described in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11 and so on will happen. It will be a time of restoration and renewal on the earth and Christ will be reigning from Jerusalem. It is going to be amazing. I want to say, it's just some other takeaways before we move on briefly. I want to say, what grace? You think about the people to whom Peter's speaking. There are people who rejected Christ. 
They're people that he said, to whom he said, you were basically complicit in his murder. You asked for a murderer to be released to you, Barabbas, and you put to death the prince of life. And yet here Peter is extending to them forgiveness. So I don't know what you've done. I don't know how many times leading up to this day you have rejected the offer of the gospel. You may be on offer number 2,000 today. I don't know. It could be more. And you've rejected the gospel so many times. Yet here you are, and God in his grace is saying, come, come, turn, and every one of your sins will be blotted out. And those times of restoration and refreshing that are coming, you will be there to enjoy it. It's not the greatest motivation, but it's a great motivation. The greatest motivation is the expunging of your sins and being reconciled to God forever. But then you have additional motivations, like enjoying the beautiful restoration that's coming. There's more that can be said about this, but I will go on to verses um, 22 and 23. So having mentioned the prophetic witness to Christ, which was from, a long, from long ago, that's the idea of the language there at the end of verse 21, Peter provides some examples, and it begins with Moses. In verses 22 and 23, we read, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now this was such a wise and timely reference by Peter to this Jewish crowd. He goes back to Moses, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, and he's showing at least two things. He's showing that Jesus is the promised prophet, with a capital P, I'll explain what I mean by that, that Moses spoke about. And then he's also showing them, reminding them, of the danger of rejecting this one. So he's saying Jesus is that one, and I want to remind you of the danger of rejecting that one. Now, many of the people regarded Deuteronomy 18.15 as a messianic prophecy. Some didn't, and some thought it was going to be for a kind of forerunner to the Messiah. But Peter is showing here that, no, it is in conjunction with the Messiah coming. It is the Messiah. He is the ultimate prophet. Real quick Christology, study of Christ. When you think of Jesus, you want to think of him as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, you had prophets priests, and kings. And all of them in some way were to point to the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the ultimate king because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. He is the ultimate king. His kingdom knows no end. He is reigning right now from heaven. Jesus is the ultimate priest because unlike those priests in the Old Testament who would live and then die, we're told Jesus lives forever to make intercession for his people. He's the ultimate priest. Everything that he prays is perfectly in line with the will of God. And he's the perfect priest because he doesn't offer up sacrifices like bulls and goats and so on. He offered up the perfect sacrifice of his own body and blood. But he's also the ultimate prophet because he's not only the one who speaks for God, he's the one who speaks as God. He's not only the one who reveals the will of God, he is the revelation of God. He is the express image of his person. So he is the prophet with a capital P, the priest with a capital P, the king with a capital K. All of those offices in the Old Testament, when you're reading through the Old Testament in like your you know, daily Bible reading, Bible in a year, and you see those offices, you're thinking they are pointing to the ultimate one to come. And Moses was pointing to that as well. Moses said that he would be a prophet like him. They did share commonalities. 
Besides the fact that both escaped being killed as babies, you look at the life of Moses and you see that both made intercession for the people of God. Both were covenant mediators and both had a kind of face-to-face intimacy with God. Jesus, though, on a level that far exceeded Moses. But he was, in many ways, a prophet like Moses. To recognize this prophet, this Messiah, was to hear him. And it's a good reminder for us, even now, to hear him is to heed him. Then he goes on and he reminds the people of the danger of rejecting this capital P prophet, the ultimate prophet, the one who spoke as God and was the revelation of the Father. He says, and, every, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Frank Allen, he recalled a story of two soldiers who were speaking together about service to Christ. And one soldier said to the other, I can't tell you all that the Lord Jesus is to me. I do wish that you would enlist in his army. And his fellow soldier answered to him, I'm thinking about it, but it means giving up several things. In fact, I am counting the cost. And as he said that, there was an officer who was walking by and he heard that remark and he laid his hand on the young shoulder, on the, uh, the young man's shoulder and he said to him, young friend, you talk of counting the cost of following Christ, but have you ever counted the cost of not following him? And that's kind of an implication of what Peter's saying here. Verse 23, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy 18, is the other side of the coin, what happens if you don't. And for the people in Jerusalem, for the, for the Jewish people of that day, it was going to lead to temporal judgment, right? 70 AD was around the corner when Jerusalem was going to be sacked and the temple was going to be destroyed. And far worse than that was going to be the judgment to come. There's a temporal cost for rejecting Christ, of course, to some degree, but there is an ultimate cost, an eternal cost for those who reject Christ. To be separated from the people of God in an ultimate sense, and to be destroyed, as it were, in judgment, in an ongoing punishment in the lake of fire. And God is calling people to repent so that they would not experience that. If you're wondering what happened to that soldier, by the way, from the account, uh, that question rang in his mind for a while. And then eventually he gave his life to Christ. And at the time of either Frank Allen's reading or the rehearsal of that story, he had been walking with Christ for about 27 years. Perhaps today, this will be the beginning of those times for you. It's exciting to think that it might be. So again, it's as though Peter's quote should have prompted the question, have we counted the cost of following him? And then he goes on, having called attention to Moses, he built upon that. As though to say, Moses wasn't the only one who spoke of these days and pointed to Christ. It's throughout the prophets. Verse 24, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. So Peter emphasizes the fact, not just Moses, whole bunch of prophets, yes, and all the prophets, the collective witness of the prophets in the Bible are pointing to the messianic age, Jesus dying for sinners, Jesus reigning, and so on. I've told you this before, so I won't belabor the point, but I think one of the most compelling things for me when I was a new Christian in coming to Christ and asking the question, are the biblical records reliable? One of the most compelling pieces of data for me alongside of manuscript evidence, alongside of historical evidence, alongside of internal evidence found within the scriptures itself was the evidence of prophecy fulfilled. It was just amazing to me. As I told you last week, and I'll say it again briefly now, if Jesus is not the Messiah in your mind, do you know what you're waiting for? 
You are waiting for somebody to come who will be born in Bethlehem, who will be born of the line of David, who will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, who will live a perfect life, who will die, who will have his hands and feet pierced, who will be mocked, who will somehow make his grave with the wicked, yet with the rich at his death, even as we know Jesus was, being crucified with thieves, then buried in the tomb of a rich man, and then he will rise three days later from the grave. And those are just some of the prophecies, riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey and so on. If Jesus is not the Messiah, then you are waiting for somebody to check a lot of boxes that I can assure you will never be checked again. Because they have been. It's amazing. And that's what Peter's basically saying. He's standing on the word of God. Look, Moses spoke of this day. Samuel spoke of this day. All of the prophets have spoken to this day. This isn't something new, people. That's what he was essentially saying to the Jewish crowd that he was speaking to. You know this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has prophesied that he was the one. This isn't new stuff. This is the fulfillment of the old stuff. Well, he basically goes on here, making a reference to the prophets, how they witnessed to Christ and the Messianic age. And then you might ask the question, okay, well, what then was the relationship of the people to those prophets? Well, in verse 25, Peter said, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's reminding them, you are the sons of the prophets. That could be language that suggests that they saw themselves as students or disciples of the prophets. More likely, it connotes that they were heirs of those things and promises that the prophets had spoken of. They didn't have a direct genealogical connection, but it was, if you will, their spiritual heritage. And he's telling this to these people. He also tells them not only that, but they were also heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. This promise that God had made to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you looked in Galatians 3, you'd see that Paul calls attention to the singular, um, the singular number of the word seed to say that ultimately that was pointing to Christ. Through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But here's the thing. It was to begin with the Jewish people hearing the good news of Christ. Verse 26. To you first. And thanks be to God, it's not to you only. It's to you first. Right? The gospel, Paul said, goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And that's what Peter is essentially saying. God promised that through the Abrahamic line and through the Messiah, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But it starts right here. He's telling them with you, with the Jewish people. To you first. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, having raised up his servant, could speak of the resurrection in light of Peter quoting from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses spoke of God raising up a prophet like him, probably has more of that connotation. But there's that word servant again, the one who would suffer for his people, the one who would be that promised um, messianic uh, person, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from your iniquities. So what would blessing look like for these people on that day? What might it look like for you right now? It would look like them turning away from their iniquities and turning to Christ. Sadly, as you go through the book of Acts, uh, you see that although the early church was comprised of uh, Jewish people, by and large, who believed the gospel, the vast majority didn't. 
As you've heard today, the time is coming when they will, but the more pressing issue at the moment, you might say, is not when that will happen, but whether or not it has happened to you. Perhaps today, Jesus is set before you for the first time or the 2000th time, and God has brought you here to bless you by turning you away from your iniquities. Think of this. Instead of awaiting the punishment that comes for rebellion against God, you can enjoy right now being reconciled to God through Christ. Instead of being bound by your sins, you can be set free because of Jesus' sacrifice. Your iniquities don't have to follow you in this life, and they don't have to follow you beyond the grave. They can be wiped away. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the gospel that can be overlooked is that there comes a clearness of conscience with the forgiveness of sins. So you don't have to have this burden on your shoulders your whole life. You could actually live in freedom, and you don't have to worry if they're going to follow you, as it were, beyond the grave. You can know that they've all been wiped away because they were all nailed, as it were, to Jesus' cross. You don't have to worry about showing up at the judgment seat of God and then having a balance due. You can know that when Jesus said on the cross to Telestai, paid in full, that it had application to you. How do you know that? Because there came that moment where you turned and you said, I believe he's the only way. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, who died for my sins and rose from the grave. Then you could say, you could look at Acts chapter 3, verse 26, and you could say, God didn't only send his Son to them to bless them, to turn them away from their iniquities, but on that day he met me, and he sent the gospel to me to turn me away from my sins and to give me everlasting life by trusting in the one who died for all of those sins, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. That's the end of Acts chapter 3. But the story continues. Remember I told you a few weeks ago that the dominoes would fall. Once you get in the beginning of Acts chapter 3, the dominoes begin to fall. First domino was the lame man's healing. Second domino was Peter's preaching. Next domino to come is the church's initial persecution. We'll see that in Acts chapter 4, Lord willing, next week. Let us go to our God in prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for the Holy One, the Prince of Life, who tasted death on our behalf so that we might have everlasting life, never having to taste of what you call in the Scriptures the second death. Thank you that through the Gospel there could be the expunging of all of our sins, eradicated and erased forever. Thank you, Father, for the good news of the Gospel. Thank you for the promise of a time that's coming, times of refreshing and the tastes that we get of such times even now. Thank you for the restoration that you've set forth in the scriptures, the pictures of it, so that we might be excited about what awaits us in the days to come. Despite how much gloom and doom there might seem to be sometimes, we know that on the horizon is the sunshine of the return of our Savior and enjoying his presence and the renewal that comes with it forever. Father, I simply pray for all of us in this room that even as Peter appealed to your word, may you help us to have increasing measures of confidence in it. As we've seen Jesus to be the one who turns his people from iniquities, Lord, please help us, Lord, to walk in the light even as you are in the light. I pray, Heavenly Father, for everyone who is in this room, that if there be those, Lord, who are here who have not come to that place where all of a sudden they've tasted of that grace that is amazing and so often surprising. Perhaps if it be your will, today will be the day. And Father, I thank you for the testimonies that are coming forth and the baptisms to happen. Lord, thank you for the joy of getting to hear those bear witness 
of the goodness of God and the gospel and what Jesus has done um, for them. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.